From Central Source and the Fifth Element Podcast Network, this is In Search of Source, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. My name is Ryan Gore, writer at Central Source. I recently released my interview with Chris Keyes, as well as a Why We Like It on Barbito. Uh, I'm here today with Brandon Hill. Hey guys, Brandon Hill, uh, writer and editor with Central Sauce. I have also recently done a Chris interview with Chris Patrick, um, and I wrote a profile that is now out on Central Sauce with a transcript for the interview coming soon. Uh, you please subscribe to my newsletter. You can find it in my bio on Twitter at Hoopla Hill. Yeah, Brandon agonized over that profile. So I think it turned out good. Check that one out. I like it. And uh, making her Central Source debut after having one of her articles read out on the podcast a few episodes ago is Jashima Wadara. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Joshima Wadara. I'm a brand strategist and writer and the newest member of Central Sauce. I'm currently working on a piece about Chameleonaire's 2007 Hip Hop Police being a gateway drug. So more on that soon. Awesome. I can't wait to read that. The picture yeah, is super, so awesome. Super excited for that debut piece. Yeah, we'll yeah for there. sure. <laughs> it's all right. Like, I'm really, I've been awful with like my um, keeping up with my writing schedule that I, my dream writing schedule. So, <laughs> whatever. Uh, today on the show, we have pieces about O3 Greedo, about posthumous albums that will make you cry, and a piece about WAP to um, rescind the tears, maybe? I don't know. Uh, but before all that, let's get into what I've been listening to. Jashima, I'll start with you. What have I been listening to recently? I've been really, really into taking it way, way, way back, which both Ryan and Brandon know. I'm listening to a lot of DMX, a lot of Tribe Called Quest right now. But what I did find cool is a new podcast by a South Asian rapper based in the UK named Rockstar, and he basically tells everyone about how he came up with his music, where he started off, and gives people advice. So that's what I'm listening to. Awesome. Brandon? Yeah, so with the announcement of the Gorillaz album, Song Machine, coming out in October, I have been listening to mostly the new Song Machine songs, but also like just crazy going back over their discography because of how just how insane that the Gorillaz overall discography is. But as far as new stuff goes, uh, Conway the Machine's new album is incredible, um, and also the new Spillage Village singles. Uh, super excited for Spillage Village, but... Lots, like, I, I don't know, lots of crazy, crazy good albums that I'm looking forward to coming up, so. I keep forgetting to listen to this village village. <laughs> You're going to hate me, man. Like, <laughs> the album's going to come out, like, five months down the line, and you're be like, oh, oh yeah. I enjoy that village village album, by the way. <laughs> I always forget to listen to them. And yeah, you should check out, I haven't, I'm going to check out that Rackstar podcast, because, um... Being from Birmingham, I was just saying to Joshima, like, you can't avoid Rackstar, you can't avoid his merch. Everyone is wearing it constantly. Yeah, I think he so, gives yeah. me, like, South Asian Frank Ocean-y vibes because he talks about mental health and his own life, but in this really great 16-set bar kind of mannerism. Yeah, yeah. That's an interesting comparison. That's really cool. I'm going to bring that up to my friends who like him more than me. <laughs> I just haven't listened to him. I just haven't listened to him that much, to be honest with you, but yeah. Yeah, that sounds interesting. Uh, in terms of what I've been listening to, uh, just an unhealthy amount of Open Mike Eagle. Joe Star. Like, he's released... I'm a Joe Star, man. Oh, my God. So, 
Brandon especially knows how much I love Open Mic Eagle. And people who have just read my piece about Parasite will know how much I like Open Mic Eagle. But he's releasing an album next year called um, Anime, Trauma and Divorce, which is nice. And he released a single from it called I'm a Joe Star, and I think I've listened to it over a hundred times in the last week, for sure. Like, I'll just fall asleep with it on loop. It's amazing, and I love it. Okay, so the first piece today is one that Brandon has brought, so do you want to jump in? Absolutely. So the first piece is in Dazed. Uh, it's titled, O3 Greedo is Running West Coast Rap from Prison, uh, and it is by a journalist named Thomas Hobbs. Uh, so this is was a bit longer of a piece, and it's sort of a not you know not necessarily a specific profile on O3 Greedo, um, but sort of an introduction to like who he is, what's going on in his life right now, uh, and how it's relevant to the wider picture, um, and then with a good focus on looking forward as well. So if you're not aware, um, O3 Greedo is a West Coast trap artist. Um, his most recent project is probably the one that's gotten the most attention, uh, Netflix and Deal, which is produced by Kenny Beats, uh, was one of my favorite albums of, uh, is that 2018 or 2019? I think it was 2018. 2019, I think. 2019? But, uh, either way, it was one of my favorite albums of whichever year it came out. And, um, I, you know, I've been, I've been listening to, like, Greedo for a while, but not really ever with a focus on, like, you know, really focused on O3 Greedo and on O3 Greedo's music. It's just more, you know, he does so much music that every once in a while, you know, I found like a really good song by O3 Greedo that made its way into my playlist. So, you know, I've sort of like grabbed bits and pieces of O3 Greedo up until Netflix and Deal. And then Netflix and Deal got me like Hmm. really, just really into his music. And then, of course, since then, uh, you know, since Netflix and Deal, Greedo has been incarcerated for a 20-year sentence for a nonviolent drug crime. Um, and then, you know, Kenny Beats, Netflix and Deal, the making of Netflix and Deal documentary, you know, got me more interested in Greedo's story. And then since then, I found this piece, which does, you know, exactly what one of the number one things when we talk about what good music journalism is doing is it should add to your relationship with the artist or add to your relationship with the music. And as I read through this piece, it, you know, gave me it not just like gave me a greater appreciation for who Greedo is, um, but it really solidified, like, first of all, solidified things that I already loved and respected about Greedo, and then put words into explaining things that were more abstract that I didn't necessarily understand about his music until uh, Thomas put it in context. So, and all, like, the structure of this piece is also one of the things that really drew me to it. Um, Because anytime you take like a long form journalism piece, you know, if you rethink it, there's always, you know, a hundred different ways that you could present the piece. And you really got to focus on long form journalism on what structure is going to be the best way to present this story because you need your readers to stick with it the whole way through. Um, So he starts off with a little bit of information that's just, you know, what, what is the most current about O3 Greedo? Um, and he mentions that Greedo is, he's in prison, um, in a prison that has had a high testing rate for COVID-19, which has sort of resulted in the prison putting like all of these inmates into, you know, isolation sort of lockdown, uh, which is just, you know, imagining like the stress that we're all dealing with, with COVID sort of being locked down in our own homes 
But then, you know, add to that like incarceration and literally being put in almost solitary confinement, not even as a punishment, but as a safety measure. Um, so it already starts off, you know, really heavy with this pull into Greedo and into Greedo's current life and how it applies to what's going on in the world right now. Um, and then he brings you into, okay, why should you care? And he sort of talks about 03 Greedo by, you know, breaking down his impressive quantity of music and the range of the music that he covers. And he really brings you into, you know, this is the circumstance that Greedo finds himself in. And here's a reason that even if you don't know him and you're not familiar with him, here's a reason that you should be invested in this outcome. Um, and he sort of does this by explaining who Greedo is through the diverse sound of his music. And one of my favorite parts of the piece was this really touching part where he explains how uh, Greedo has lived, he spent most of his 20s, dealing on and off with homelessness. And he nearly had his leg amputated from a brutal gunshot wound. And that it was, you know, Greedo's own faith that he wanted to keep the leg when the doctors wanted to amputate it that sort of Thomas uses as sort of a overarching theme of like how Greedo's personality carries into the struggles that he's got right now. That, you know, even during these bouts of homelessness, Greedo always had this vision of himself as a pop culture icon for his community. And there was something just really, really powerful about that, that through all that struggle, you know, sleeping on park benches, struggling to find another meal and just dealing with the environment that he grew up in, that he still has this image of himself coming up as a pop culture icon. Um, and there's just bits and pieces of that strength is just really communicated well throughout this piece and in a way that connects it to, you know, what's going on right now and then how we should, you know, how to move forward with, uh, you know, he mentions Greedo serving a minimum five years with opportunity for parole, but his first parole hearing has already been denied. So it, it brings into account, you know, a lot of conversation about the incarceration rate of African-American men for nonviolent drug crimes. Uh, I think he quotes the statistic that 60% of all inmates in the U.S. are African-American men incarcerated for nonviolent drug crimes. And then uses this sort of image to set Greedo up as a person who really represents his community and represents his culture. And then takes that he's serving a 20 chunk of years of his life for a nonviolent drug crime. So, you know, not only is he representative of his community in the music that he makes, but in the predicament that he finds himself in. Um, so, I mean, needless to say, I loved this piece. It really brought me closer to Greedo, but I'd love to hear, you know, some of your guys' thoughts, what you enjoyed about it, um, what you think about Greedo, if you've been listening to any of his music. Yeah, I mean, I think one of my favorite things about the piece was the way that he was described, right? I think there's a line where he says resilience was hardwired into his DNA. And I think a lot of times when there's a piece like this where people are talking about a lot of intersectional things, COVID, racial disparities nonviolent drug crimes and stylistic issues, you lose sight of that because journalists spend so much time trying to write about everything the person ever did in their career, everything they've come over, but so few actually describe the character of a person, especially rappers. I don't think they get enough credit for who they are in character traits. So I really enjoyed that one line specifically, that resilience was hardwired in his DNA. Right. You know, how do you use how do you use music to describe a person when that person's music ranges 20 something albums and mixtapes of a massively varying, you know, genre and content 
that all still pulls from the common ground that is the life that he's lived and that resilience that's so hardwired into his personality. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I think, like, the main thing that I feel like um, Thomas Hobbes tried to do was, like, paint a picture of Guido with, like, texture and complexities rather than try and make it sort of stereotypical. Like Joshim was talking about, you have to be careful. Like, it's... It's a common trap for people to fall into is put people into categories. But that's one thing that Hobbes never did in this. He made sure to paint every side of Greedo. And you say it's not really a profile, but in that sense, I think it is. I feel like he took kind of this point in his life as a microcosm of what of who Ofri Greedo is. And refers to him as um, Jackson for the most of it. Like, in call him Greedo. Yeah. He calls him by his government name, which um, links to a line that Guido said, like in the interview part, where he said, um, "My music is mostly me trying to humanize what people think is mafia," and it's that's what the whole thing is about, really, isn't it? It's like this isn't an out of touch plight of a celebrity. This is like I'm another victim of the prison industrial complex, like. And the fact that this guy was on the run from the police still recording music, like recording music while on the run from the police is insane. And it speaks to something that's more than like a guy who just wants to rap for money or anything like that. It's someone who understands the power of his art and his voice and understands the power of all art because if you look at the artists that he names, they're so like from all these different backgrounds. And um, Picasso, I forgot his relationship to the guy Picasso. Uh, he was the A&R, I think, that uh, pulled up his sound, like kind of discovered him. Right. And the way he said um, he wants him to just go to move to a farm and make country albums for the rest of his life. Like, <laughs> yeah, the way I thought that was, Yeah, I thought that was great. And just like, there was no part of this that felt like he was trying to paint Guido as a monolith in any sense like it just felt so holistic I guess like so encompassing of every aspect of him and I think that's so important for an artist to have themselves represented that way yeah there's I mean there's something you'll notice you know I mean you you even brought it up with uh Picasso and you can see uh there's quotes from Kenny Beats throughout this uh piece as well Um, and so you get this sort of sense of like how people talk about Greedo. And if you read, you know, if you read even more about him or watch the documentary I mentioned, like people talk different about O3 Greedo. Like um, in the documentary, Vince Staples goes on talking about O3 Greedo and he is just, he, he get, you can tell he gets like super serious and genuine. And he's like, Greedo is not in this for money or the fame. Like he is really just wants to make music and just wants to put out art. Um, and, you know, in the documentary, um, Greedo mentions how, you know, one of the things that he really wants to do is start a charity for inner city schools that promotes the idea that it's okay to be the smart kid in the hood, right? Because, you know, Greedo talks, he yeah. talks about how, like, that's, you know, it's kind of looked down on to be seen as, like, the smart or the artsy one or the creative one, um, but it's given him an outlet in his life that he has sort of just you know, steamrolled into this thing that has, like, become his whole life. 
and it's you, you just get that and how people talk about Dorito. It's it's crazy. Um, actually, there's a great quote from Kenny Beats in the article that sort of describes uh, Dorito's music, where Kenny Beats calls it or act well. Kenny Beats refers to it as how Dorito refers to his own music by calling it creep music. Um, and he says, creep music is how Jackson describes his sound, which intentionally shifts between a feeling of giddy euphoria and bone-chilling paranoia, symbolizing how black men in America continuously need eyes in the back of their head. Yeah, that was one of my favorite quotes from the entire piece because I think it's so important that he describes his sound in relation to his humanity, right? So the paragraph right before that, it's a lot of description of his vocal layering, of his capabilities. And I think so often we don't see writers do that. We don't see them relate character to art. It's often like because of a tough childhood, X, Y, Z led to this and then they became popping. But I think this piece does a really, really good job of connecting that storyline and making it holistic, like Ryan said. It makes it, yeah, it makes it very, you know, he does a good job of not separating Greedo's life and his career, Um, you know, not separating the music from the person and sort of the identity and the issue that he's dealing with now and in his incarceration. It's very much like all just painted as part of the same story. It's like if you were looking at it, you know, it wouldn't be a slideshow. It would be one picture. It would be one painting that just contains all the details, uh, which I think is a very it's a difficult thing to do when sort of like profiling a person um is because you just kind of naturally want to think of things in snapshots or in phases or you know cause and effect causation like they are this way Mm. because this happened but it's you know it's more of like that that steamrolling effect and just how everything cumulatively comes together um and you know thomas hobbs did an excellent job of putting that with this profile and another thing that's definitely worth mentioning for this is just the sheer difficulty of this interview. Um, you know, he, he had to make prison phone calls, or I'm sure, you know, there were, he wrote some letters back and forth before securing the interview. But just, there, like, there's enough difficulties that arrive in an interview when you have it scheduled on Zoom with a backup recording, your recorder next to you, and a pen and pencil. Like, let alone the fact that you have to do you know, these recordings over a prison payphone with limited time, horrible audio quality. So your recording might not even be reliable. So you got to take those notes and you might not even be able to understand, you know, exactly what he's saying. Um, And, you know, Hobbs did a great job working around that difficulty and that challenge. Yeah, I'm just reading it. Like I felt the graft that was put into this piece. I felt like I felt the intention that was put into every sentence. And I can't imagine... The process of this piece like how arduous it might it must have been just to first of all record everything for sure but then sequence it get these different quotes from all these different people and create a narrative and making sure that narrative is respectful of the art and is serving the art like it feels so intentional that he didn't just throw his quotes down this didn't feel like something that would have been a transcript he felt like the narrative was extremely important and yeah he just there's no way he could have told this story a different way it just wouldn't have worked any other way apart from 
this, and it's a pretty high risk piece, right? Because it's a long one, and you have to you have to, you have, to have someone take a chance on a piece this long, and like be ensure that people are gonna click on it and read all the way, and that speaks to the quality of it, which really carries it, and the um. It's unique nature, I think. I don't see many profiles like this. Do you guys see profiles that are this in-depth? No, I was going to say, I think as music journalists, all of us aim to do the art or the artist due diligence. And that's really, really hard in a short attention span time and community. And making something like this, where it's like the best first 20 pages of a book where you can't stop reading and you're so tuned in, but it still does such incredible justice to Greedo is crazy difficult and such an immense responsibility. If you were the one journalist mm. that got this opportunity, how do you make sure you do that person's life, their sound, but also the publication you're writing for justice? Right. I think it's very, you know, as especially in hip hop, as hip hop journalists, I think you need to be very, very conscious uh, when writing about the lifestyles of these artists, not to romanticize um, the trauma of, Af- of African-Americans in America and you know that can be a very it can be a very easy thing to do because it seems like the catchy grabby thing that's like oh like hard life hard life built this person respect this person because of this hard life but uh Hobbs does a great job in you know not just explaining like okay the, like these are traumatic events that have happened in Greedo's life but sort of putting that on a broader picture and not just stating that like that's a given and then brushing over it but sort of you know, like giving giving that full picture on exactly, you know, what that issue is and how it's built and how it's structured so that it can be sort of not, you know, not just glanced over or not just used as a means of like drawing attention or drawing att- attraction to this character, but using it as, you know, sort of a lens to to also reflect on, you know, the societal problems and you know, the community issues that are the root of how this person became who they are. Yeah, and I liked Greedo's reflections on his own struggles and how he said, he said something like, when I drive a really expensive car, it's about sending a message of hope to people like me rather than seeing his struggle as a rite of passage. He sees that he's not someone who's like, this is the way it's always going to be. He's someone who wants, he knows things can be better. And he wants things to be better for other people rather than having everyone struck. Because people do that. People like, like you see people older than us, like you guys have it easy these days. As if it's our fault, as if we're doing something wrong by not struggling. And I feel like that's a, that's a positive outlook to have. It's like, I don't want everyone to go through what I've gone through. I want it to be better for everyone. I want to send a message of hope rather than one of, you have to do what I did, go through what I went through. Right. It's about not making it look attractive. Um, You know, like I said, with romanticizing the struggle, it's very easy to make that look attractive as if that's a desirable trait to have persevered through these scenarios. And Hobbes doesn't do that. He very much makes it like, not like, like, look how strong Grudo has became because of these things. But he's like, look at these bad things and how they reflect on sort of the larger picture. Look what he's had to do to become the person he is rather than, you know, sort of making it look, you know, paint it like a story or like a movie and like make it desensitizing. Um, He's very much outlined it as like, this is terrible, but this is 
who he is and this is what he's gone through. Uh, I think, a you know, a big part of that, one of the most powerful moments of that in the piece is when uh, he mentions Greedo is in the booth and he receives a phone call that his cousin that he was just hanging out with two hours ago had been shot and killed. And Greedo went in and he recorded, like, right then and there, he recorded the song For My Dogs, um, which is actually a, it's a Greedo song that I was familiar with, I'd heard before. But, man, like, since reading this piece, like, that song really has... It, it, I mean, it just, there's, it has more levels to, like, it's just such a much more powerful song now, uh, which just rounds out back to, you know, what I've said about the great journal- journalism should bring something extra, some kind of relationship to the music, um, and it should increase that relationship. And, I mean, just in that one song right there, you can see how powerful of an impact that this piece alone has had. Yeah, I think my absolute favorite part of the piece is probably the least heavy, um, but it's when... Greedo talks about how Nipsey was an influence for him in many ways, but he feels the need to do what Ryan said, to buy the car, to talk about eating the Wagyu beef, and to get jewelry when you've been homeless. And I think that part humanizes a lot of people because what happens in rap and hip-hop is folks get so fixated on the struggle that they define everybody's material assets in relation to that struggle. Oh, they were in gang life. Oh, they did this. Oh, they did that. It's blood money. It's this money, right? And I think those things are really hard for us to say out loud, but it's also, it's okay to want things even if you haven't come from nothing. It's okay to want things if you have come from nothing and everybody wants things. And so I think adding that bit in was really smart and it makes Greedo seems so much more human and honest, right? Because easily a writer could have been like, only does community impact and only wants to talk about X, Y, Z things. And you're like, no, I want the badass car and I want chains and that's okay. Yeah, he literally literally says, uh, I think it's even a direct quote from Greedo where he says, no, I feel like I deserve this. Like I'm going to give back to my community, but I also... I've been homeless for so long, I deserve the cars and the chains for the work I've done. 100%. Yeah, really in-depth piece that needed the length, I think. You really justified, like, everything. Like I was saying to you guys before, it's a really compact piece, despite being long. Like, there's no line wasted. Everything adds to the story. So, yeah, great job, Thomas Hobbs. That was O3 Greedo's Running West Coast Rap from prison for dazed. And check out the uh, playlist included with the piece. It's on Spotify called uh, O3 Greedo's Universe of Sounds. Uh, he did. I mean, you can tell how passionate the journalist is about Greedo's music as well because of just how well he curated the playlist. I mean, cur- curating a playlist accurately and well with 20-something albums and mixtapes to work with has to be an incredible task of its own, and I really enjoyed the playlist. Okay, the second piece that we have today uh, is from Complex. Okay, I'll say like beforehand, we'll get into the actual piece. Complex. I don't go on Complex much because like generally the stuff they cover isn't just what I really care about reading. I don't want to be <laughs> be like that, but like I just tend to, don't tend to go on it much. But I'm a big fan of um, Andre Andre Guy. Who's right or G? Is it Andre G or Guy? I've never heard it pronounced. It could be either way. G. I'm going to say G. Okay. So uh, I'm a fan of his work and I saw him tweet about releasing this article, so I checked this one out. And I just want to say Complex, 
the ads you don't need so many ads like, <laughs> and you don't need ads to shift the page when i'm reading the piece i don't want an ad to pop up and like have the text go down halfway through the page i have to scroll and find it like please stop doing that i'm sure like you need the revenue and stuff but like dazed magazine had so many ads on the page but it wasn't disrupting disrupting the text like there's a way to do it complex if you're listening please please stop doing that complex like, the entity <laughs> yes, Sean Evans, everyone involved with Complex, please just stop that. Uh, okay, ran out of the way. Let's get into this piece, which is very intimate and sad. Um, yeah, so Andre G, I'm a big fan of what he does. I think he's like a really thoughtful person, and that really translates to his um, his voice when he writes. So this piece is called uh, "Posthumous Rap Albums and the Shattered Myth of Closure." I love to think they came up with that title. I really hope you do, because that's an incredible title. Um, so I'm going to start this one just by quoting him in Hardwell style. So he said, Posthumous albums do more than entertain or placate fans. They offer fascinating, frightening glimpses of unresolved dreams and nightmares. And, yeah, that's the thing about uh, the life of an artist being cut short. Like... The things they talk about on the album isn't going to be about them sailing off into the sunset. It's always going to be an unfinished story. And that's kind of what the piece is about. It's about how posthumous albums kind of prolong the process of closure when you lose one of your favourite artists. And this piece kind of converted me from someone who used to say, oh, it's great that we got to hear them one last time to I, I don't know how to reconcile with the hope that this artist is talking about on the album knowing that they've passed on um, so he uses uh, Pop Smoke's latest album, he uses Bankroll Fresh, his album Juice World and Mac Miller all released posthumous albums this year uh, Bankroll Fresh releasing one four years after his passing um, and he kind of uses all all four of those albums to discuss the different um, ways in which he was impacted by those albums. Bankroll and uh, Pop Smoke, their albums are very aspirational, and Mac Miller's and Juice World's, their albums are very. Um, they detail their problems of substance abuse quite heavily in their music. But with Max specifically, he showed this clarity on circles that, um, oh man, it's so difficult for me to talk about this album. (laughs) It's really difficult. He kind of showed this, this clarity and these positive signs of moving forward. And there's a listener hearing that and then knowing that he won't get the chance they won't get the chance to fulfill those goals or see that positive changes it's just as you said it's the it's, it's the shattered myth of closure it doesn't really exist and the way that posthumous albums are kind of marketed is as something that will help tide fans over almost but this piece really got me wondering if they're really mean, like, if they're really mean things to put out, because 
obviously it's all capitalist and you don't want to profit on the name of the artist apart from the case of Mac which I think was done very tastefully but um yeah I'd love to know what guys you guys think because I'm really struggling to talk about this now I didn't think it would be this difficult and I don't want to start crying on the podcast it I mean it is it is difficult it is a hard thing when I read the title of I think I even said something in the slack when I read the title of this piece that you were bringing to the podcast I was like god god damn it Like I was like I knew I was like damn it I don't I don't want I don't want to know this I don't want you to take this from me right and and you know that's not to say that like I didn't enjoy the piece I did very much it's very very well written but there's even something about like you said the title like the shattered myth of closure shattered like just the word like I think a lot about like word choice and very specific words and shattered is sort of how I felt reading this piece. You know, I, I felt like I, especially Mac, I think Mac Miller, um, you know, for you, for me, I don't know about Joshima, but is probably the most um, sort of upfront example that he provides uh, more so than, I guess Pop Smoke would be the second second one for me. But the Mac Miller example specifically is very like, because I, you know, I've been listening to Mac Miller since 2008, like literally grew up with Mac Miller. Um and then, you know, and then his death, and then he's not there anymore. And Swimming was the last album he left on. And Swimming was just so, you know, it, it left it left a space, right? Which was intentional as part of Mac's artistry because it was part of, part, supposed to be, you know, a two-part album, uh, Swimming in Circles. So then, of course, you know, you think getting the second half is supposed to fill that gap, right? But you, you can never, like, you're never going to fill that gap because Mac Miller is the gap and he's not, you know, he's not there anymore. It's not just about the music. It was about growing up with Mac Miller and it was about seeing his struggles and, you know, and, and getting those through the music and then relating some of those struggles to your own life and seeing it, you know, you know, not just how good the music is and how much you connect to the music, but how much you want to see these people that you care about succeed. And you want to see these people that you care about overcome these things because you have related them to yourself right and then when you know so when circles comes out you there's this need to feel the completion there's this need to feel completed because you have so closely tied i I mean i I should maybe speak in first person i like i had so closely tied you know my life experience and my growth into mac miller and into his music and into like you know because that's what music does and then you need to feel that completed. And, you know, for a while, like with Circles, I definitely did. Like, it definitely felt like there was an, yeah, you know, it, it felt it felt like there was an answer, right? Like you were kind of looking for a question in this confusion and then someone provided you an easy answer and you just wanted to take it because that's like what, you know, that's what you needed, right? But then, you know, he brings up like all these all these points where it's about like, yes, so circles did answer the question of swimming, right? It 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 uh, sort of fulfilled a lot of the stuff that swimming left hanging with, you know, his substance abuse and his internal struggles and his turmoil and how he's growing. And then circles is this sound of, you know, sort of succeeding. It's meeting some of those challenges. But then circles also introduced challenges of its own because growth is never a start and a finish you know it's a continuous process and so circles and this is not all my own original thoughts this is stuff that uh andre 
G introduced in the piece. Um, you know, it, it, it introduces more opportunities for growth. And then you're kind of left with the choice of, like, do I take that and, you know, and just try to cut it off there because that's what I need and that's what I feel like is best? Or do I now have to continue thinking and continue wondering? Uh, so shattered just really like encapsulated that. That's how I felt reading this piece was definitely shattered. I think what really stuck with me was that when musicians or artists or entertainers are alive, we act as though what they're producing, be it a film or a song, is what we will grieve the loss of. But really what we end up grieving the loss of is the creator and their journey that led to that piece of art. It's so seldom that you're identifying with just these lyrics on a piece of paper, right? It's it's the whole package and that relation. And I think Andre says something in the end of the intro, which was really compelling for me, but it's so simple. We're rarely ready for death, but it's always ready for us. And then he goes on to say that posthumous albums really just remind us of unresolved dreams we had attached to those artists, right? It's not, in some ways, we almost dehumanize entertainers because we forget that what we want out of them is not necessarily what they want out of their lives. And I think that that's a really real realization I had from reading this piece because I was like, whoa, did those artists or them dying, did I stop to think, damn, they didn't get to do what they wanted with their life? Or am I thinking, damn, I didn't get to see what they would give to us out of their life? Yeah, and that perspective is so important. Like, Andre's perspective in general is, like, the best asset of this piece. It's incredibly well-written. Well, it's technically amazing, but just his perspective on this was so needed for me, and I can tell for you guys as well. Like, you needed that shift. And, you need, and that's, like, that's the purpose of the whole thing, right? As a journalist, you want to make sure you're adding to a conversation in a healthy way. And I feel like after reading this, I definitely change the way I approach my thoughts on posthumous albums and on uh, the death of artists in general. You know, a lot of the conversation around, like, the death of an artist can be, I wish they were still releasing music, but this piece is more like, I wish that they got to fulfil what they're talking about here, like, what they're screaming at us is, like, what they want to do with their lives, like, yeah, it's just, I'm very thankful for this piece, because I feel like in a strange way, him saying that, like, these aren't meant to give you closure, these aren't really made for that, I think that helps in a big way, just to, as in terms of, like, expectations. Like, when I listen to Circles, it's purely something that Mac Miller made. It's not an answer for me, you know? It's not for me, it's not my art, it's Mac Miller's art. It's something that he wanted to do. It's less, as you say, Joshin was put it perfectly, it's less about the art and more about the person. Yeah, I just can't thank Andrew enough for changing my perspective on that, because whether it's like conscious or subconscious, like I think I did the same thing. Like, am I more worried about this not getting his art anymore because Mac Miller has made music that's like helped me through tough times. Am I, or I'm upset because of the person and which I sh- which you should be really, yeah. 
I think what happens is it's not wrong to be entertained or to be supported or to be attached to music, right? And one of the most brilliant things Andre does is the lyrics he chose to integrate from each artist in the piece. Because I think we're in a really, really tumultuous time where mental health is starting to become normalized, A, globally in some facets, but also for men, which is something we don't talk about a lot, especially in rap or hip hop. And so being able to a, read the lyrics a lot of us internally identified with, whether it's talking about mental health or suicide or drug-related issues. I think seeing that in a written piece makes an insurmountable difference to remind you why you identified with them, not just because of your struggle, but because it was their struggle too. Right. And and mentioning, okay, so mentioning like with the lyrics too and the lyric choice um, also brings attention to how different the artists are that he discusses in the piece. And he sort of so we've you know we've kind of focused a lot on Mac Miller like I specifically have focused a lot on Mac Miller, um, but he sort of breaks down these posthumous albums into two categories like the the Mac Miller and the Juice World whose music was very much about their internal struggles their substance abuse um, and then sort of the shattering of their death in relation to substance abuse, um, but then the second category is the Pop Smoke and the Bankroll Fresh, which is more of, like, the braggadocious rap music. Um, and But he sort of explains how, you know, even though they weren't talking, you know, their music wasn't about their own internal struggles, and their, I'm not sure about Bankroll, but I know Pop Smoke's death wasn't uh, directly a result of, like, his own actions of substance abuse that he talked about in his music, but that it's equally as shattering because that braggadocious music is about coming from, you know, coming from a struggling community, coming from a hard life and like overcoming it. And like, like we talked about with Greedo, like now you got the chains and now you got the car and showing to your community that, you know, it is possible to overcome that, that you can do it. It's the inspiration of that. So, and he kind of explains sort of the empty feeling behind that music now, because they're not there to enjoy that career that they earned. You know, they're not there to wear the chains and drive the nice car and have the parties and be that figure that, you know, braggadocious rap music is sort of about. Um, so it, it's, it's, it's easy to, and I've definitely found this for myself. Like it's very, it's easy to get wrapped up in the loss of someone like Mac Miller or Juice World because of, it's so much easier to draw that direct parallel to the content of their music um, but that's one of the things this piece did extraordinary well for me was Andre drew the parallel, he drew a more difficult parallel to the Pop Smokes and the Bankroll Fresh that is now just as weighty and just as heavy to me as the loss of Mac Miller. And that's really saying something with how much, you know, I kind of explained that like personal connection to Mac Miller. Um, and I didn't have that much of a commercial connection to Pop Smoke or bankroll fresh, but he drew that line so well that I now, like, I can now see that connection just as strongly as feeling the loss of someone I was so personally tied to, like Mac Miller. Yeah, indefinitely. I think this piece is just really hard to talk about. It's really yeah. hard to talk about because it's so multi-layered. But I think the last, the last, the end of his piece, he says something like storybook endings are called that because they're tragically unrealistic. And that really connected for me with the pop smoke bit based on what you just said, Brandon, because maybe I didn't relate as directly to pop music in the way that I did the other folks, but I then understood it because it took me a minute to go back and be like, what do you represent? 
And what does the braggadocious nature of your music represent for a community of people? And what do we become when we listen to that, right? How does our conscious mind switch? Suddenly we think we can do anything. And isn't that just as valuable as the flip side of the very human things about all of us that maybe Mac Miller's talking about? Yeah. Yes. Man, this piece is so good. I'm... <laughs> it's, it's all about changing perspective on, your, on art, right? Even art that we haven't, that I didn't, like, I can say I never had an had emotional connection to Pop Smoke's music, but through this piece I've gained one. And that's just a massive compliment to what right. Andre's done. Like, that's what this is meant to do, you know? And I'm I'm glad we've had so much to talk about on this subject, too, because like uh, Joshima said, it's, first of all, it's a difficult subject to talk about, let alone a difficult one to write about. Um, and then even in, like, in reading the piece... Like I, it was such a difficult, you know, like emotionally difficult read that I stopped taking notes like three paragraphs into it. I literally only have one note in my notebook over here on this piece. Um, and so, you know, a lot of this is just off top and that shows how emotionally charged that this subject is and how emotionally inspired that his writing, Andre's writing brought to us. Yeah, and like being able to channel that emotion. I always talk about that with like with artists. Whenever I get to art, ask an artist a question, it's always about how do you channel your emotion into your music? How do you translate what you feel inside to words on a page? And I guess it might be even more difficult for a journalist because you don't just take into account your uh, perspective as an artist would. You have to be balanced and you have to be fair. And I feel like there's a lot more to take take into account, I guess. But I feel like Andre's um Andre's voice is so developed where it's just naturally it naturally has that balance. Like it's ingrained there already. He's like such a good journalist, almost naturally. He's one of the most brilliant writers. His word choice and sentence structure abilities oh are so absurdly well balanced. Mm. Like concise sentences meeting more expanded run on esque thoughts, just the sheer formatting of his style is incredible. Yeah, um I'm glad I got to bring a piece of his. Uh I didn't mean it to be on such a heavy episode in general, but that's another <laughs> thing. But um I did bring one of his pieces to an episode that's lost to the ether now. Oh uh, was he, I uh, fabled I thought we I thought nine. we'd cover it before on episode nine. No, actually, it wasn't me. It was Tyler who brought the piece. But his recording failed, so he didn't get to uh, upload the episode. But I'm glad we got to, I guess, give Andre his flowers on this one because, like, we're all just in awe at this piece, I think. Um, yeah, so any other thoughts on that? I'm going to go cry to circles after we're done recording this. <laughs> oh, man. I'm going to have to, too. Like, the thing is about circles... It's a continuation of Swimming, and Swimming was an album where he was looking for answers, as like kind of what um, Brandon was saying. Like it's not just a listener looking for answers, but it's Mac looking for answers on the album as well. And Circles kind of asked some of the same questions, but on a smaller scale. I feel like Mac was trying to grapple with the entire universe on Swimming, but on Circles, like. Um, I remember on Complicated, like, Andre brings up the line, he says, um, some people say they want to live forever, that's way too long, I'll just get through the day, without any complications, like, and I feel like that scale 
oh man like he was right there you know he was right there he was like really getting there man and um yeah i just like how and i guess like and andre like closes the i keep saying like andre <laughs> closes the piece with a little few lines a little line about um how kind of to deal with that he says uh it's tragic that they're no longer here to add to their story, but one way to celebrate their legacy is to embrace the full breadth of our own experience, whatever it may be at this moment. And, like, yeah, that's the only way to really, like, have that closure, even if it is a myth. Even if it's something sold to us so we listen to the posthumous album. It's, like, it's possible to just, I guess, kind of... absorb lessons from what you know about the artist and I guess I don't know celebrate our own experience as like as Andre says yeah for sure alright that was Posthumous Rap Albums and The Shattered Middle of Closure by Andre G for Complex, fix the ads, please. <laughs> please fix the ads. <laughs> and uh, for for listeners who enjoyed hearing us talk about death, you can go check out episode 13 <gasps> of the podcast, where we actually covered uh, a piece by Yo Phillips, which is one of my favorite we've done on the podcast, on, um, what was it called? Something about, oh, every every rapper is going to die, and so will I by, so Yo, by Yo Phillips. It's on DJ Booth. Uh, we talked about it on episode 13, and just sort of how you know, sort of how rappers and artists and writers in, sort of envision death and talk about death in their art. Um, we previously talked about that on episode 13, so. Yeah, and um, that's one of Yo's favorite pieces, and it's probably my favorite article I've ever read, and thank you, Brandon, for bringing it on the show, because why do we talk about death so much on this podcast <laughs> about music journalism? <laughs> it's not all right. It's not all right. Anyway, complex, fix the ads. Uh, so the next piece is Tashimus, so I'll let you introduce it. Yes, it is Consequence of Sounds, article by Candace McDuffie, and it's called Backlash Against Cardi B and Megan Thee Stallion's WAP Highlights Double Standards in Hip Hop. Now, the title I'm not as in love with as I am the subtitle, and it says, Critics Continue to Fail to Acknowledge the Multidimensional Nature of Black Women. So for starters, I'm a big Candace McDuffie fan. I think she is an incredible music journalist, but she also refers to herself as a culture critic, which I really, really enjoy because I think in times where we discuss a lot of things about gender discrepancies, racial bias, cultural appropriation, we miss the part where not everything is about canceling, but it is about critiquing. And constructive criticism is extremely important. So for those of us like writers that do contribute to how we purvey culture, and how we consume it, I think assuming that responsibility in such a public manner by defining yourself by that responsibility is bold and impressive. Um, So obviously everybody knows that this song has been super controversial. Um, Some people are gyrating with their grandmas and having them do reaction videos, and other people are really, really angry 
And I think my favorite thing about the piece is that Candace is able to describe people's reaction and the controversy and negate it without criticizing them in the way that they slandered Cardi and Meg. And I think that's huge. So obviously WAP is... Can I curse on this show? Can I yeah. use profane language, yeah. rather? Go for it. I don't know. Wet-ass pussy, children. <laughs> Just We're talking about wet-ass pussy. Break the um, ice. Someone had to say it first. Yeah, you know? It's okay. <laughs> but what I love about the song itself, actually, is the 1993 sample from Frank Ski's Whores in the House. Whores in this house? Yeah. Um, I think that's incredible. And Candace references that in her piece. But... The style of the piece is hands down the thing that needs recognition first before the actual topic. She integrates so much humor into something that is also very, very, very serious. And it's no secret that female artists are treated exceptionally differently than male artists, especially in hip hop, right? So often women are utilized as the topic of lyrics in music videos used to sell a song it's usually about them, but what you don't see them recognized in is the narrative of helping someone make it, right? Or any of these things that are societally considered positive. And then she goes in to talk about kind of how we all view sex from a man's perspective and what being sexually empowered means, right? So when we're fucking bitches and getting money, that's dope. But when Cardi B is doing splits on a floor of a candy-colored house, it's tawdry. And I think that that's something we don't say out loud like that enough, right? It's seeing women be comfortable with their sexuality or depicting acts of sex is still seen as extremely uncomfortable, unwarranted, sloppy when it really shouldn't be. Um, So I'd love to hear what you guys think about that before I keep going. Yes, men talking about um, (laughs) women's sexuality. It's always a good mixture. No, no, no. Um, But... um, yeah, well, the one thing that I really like about this piece that you that you touched on is like it's short and sweet, but dispels all the bullshit thrown at the song, like bit by bit, like competently, just like that. It's like this is the criticism. Well, this is the answer to that. Like it's just so smooth, I guess. It's so smoothly done. And one of the main things that really annoyed me, like what the criticisms of it was, like it's being it, using sex to sell, right? But if you're using it to sell, people are, and people, you know people are going to get angry over it. So how is that using it to sell if people are going to get upset over it? That's just an oxymoron to me. And like the fact that they knew that they couldn't release this song without receiving criticism, like there's no way they were unaware. You know, it's it's an act of defiance that's really at the core of hip hop, isn't it? Hip hop is about liberate liberation, right? It's about tearing down structures that are unjust and imbalanced. And this is... WAP is at the core of hip-hop. WAP is what hip-hop was founded for. It, it really is. You know, if you're going to make an environment for minorities to freely speak out about injustice, going back to the message, you know, this is what the genre is founded on. And this is just the continuation of that. So... If you're a fan of hip hop, you can't not be a fan of WAP. You cannot can't not be a fan of women against masses of criticism, as we've seen, still going out there and saying, "I'm going to 
remove the stigma from my sexuality and I'm gonna own it and I think that's that's why the song's incredible like that's why the success of the song is important to me yeah and I think in the article she references Salt and Peppa, Lil Kim and you know it was a great reference that was one of my favorite parts of the article there are so few references when we think of female hip-hop artists that we can think of as that revolutionary or that came over overcame that much adversity because there are so few that end up on the other side of that right that still have a song any of us can reference whereas if we're talking about their male counterparts they're there by the dozens if not hundreds right and so I think that part was huge and my favorite part was that she talked about the fact that nobody made a criticism of validity right no one talked about how brilliant the music video was shot and if they didn't like it nobody talked about that as well no one talked about the costume design like they would have and this is where we talk about racial disparity like they would have if it was a lady gaga right there, there was none of that there was no complimenting of costume design or of this grandiose manner that they developed and i think the biggest miss was i scoured the internet and nobody talked about the importance of not just the celebrities included, but their diversity in who they were. Normani, Kylie Jenner, Rosalia, right? Now, when Drake does something with Bad Bunny, we talk about that really fast and talk about how that's a global sound and that's global representation, but this is too, you know? And I think that part really struck a chord with me. There's, I mean, okay, so there's always the whole argument where people are gonna be like, like, oh, I, I just didn't like the song. Like, I just didn't like the music, but, the whole fact that we're having this conversation is is evidence that women are treated differently in hip hop. The fact that we have to have this conversation, and it's not like this is the first time this conversation has ever been had. You know, you know, it like all the time. There's with um, with women in music. There's the oh, they're just using their body because how you know they pose on a cover or just how their promotional shots are. But they don't have that conversation when 50 Cent has a shirtless picture on his album cover. That conversation is not even had for sex. It's only had when women are involved. So there's like that sort of two-faced debate that's, you know, one person like saying, oh, like, no, it's about the music. Um, and another person saying like, oh, no, like it's about empowerment. Um, but I mean, for me, like it, it, it's one of those things where feels like like we shouldn't have to keep having this conversation have to keep going over it because it's like they they're you're you are treating them differently like it and and that's what the journalist in this does a great job of outlining and as far as the debate on whether the song is empowering or whether the song is uh you know a, just a blatant use of like sex sells sex appeal it's empowering as fuck it's the fourth song this year that's gone number one as all female collaborators. The fourth song this year. That's history breaking. That's empowering in itself. Whether or not you like the music is not, it does not matter in whether or not the song is empowering. Like your blatant judge of like, even if you did take a critical analysis on it and were like, oh, well, I didn't like their cadence or their rhythm or the way they approached the bar or critique the music video, even that kind of critique doesn't matter. It's empowering. Like four songs this year, all females have gone number one. Uh, Doja Cat and Nicki Minaj say so. Uh, Meg again with Beyonce on the Savage remix. Uh, Lady Gaga and Ariana Grande rain on me. And then uh, Megan Cardi with WAP. That's, that's crazy. That's not, that's never happened before in a year. 
And the fact that that is not the focus of this conversation, the fact that the focus of the conversation is on they talked about pussy too much or they used too graphic descriptions of sex or that they have blatantly talked about enjoying sex or the pleasure of sex, the fact that like that is the focus of the conversation on whether or not it's empowering is on the content of the lyrics and the style of the song is ridiculous. Like, the, we shouldn't be even be having, like, shouldn't need to have this conversation. Like, four, four all-female collaborations have gone number one this year. Like, that is awesome. Like, that is, that's a change in how people are perceiving and approaching music that involves women. Like, that's powerful. Like, that's, that's new. That's different. Like, that hasn't, that hasn't happened before. Yeah, absolutely. Kudos to you for saying that. Um, that, that. That's great. And I think that one of the biggest misconceptions is that women desire some sort of pedestal for these things. More often than not, I think, I'm saying this, I'm only representing me in this moment. <laughs> I think one of the greatest things is I'm not even at a place where I believe that the ability to praise a four album success of all females is somewhere where we are right now. I'm at a place where I think, cool, if you have to critique something, at least do it constructively on valid points that are music or visually related or artistically relevant. Because I think we're fighting so many battles and there is so much progress, clearly, if there's four massive chart-topping album songs, right? And so there's progress that way, but when we're covering those songs, why is there not the same narrative of irrespective of how you feel about it? I don't care if you like the song. The song did this, right? And we see that in a billboard headline. We see it really quickly, but nobody has gone to break down and say, what a dope use of that sample. What a great DOP. All of these different things that I think we do when we talk about male success and songs by folks of other genders, right? And so... That is big for me, constructively criticizing, because I think that's when you treat an artist like an artist, right? It's not, it's not glorifying them for no reason or because of views or because of this. It's when you treat them like their art deserves your attention based on merit. And that, I think, Candace was really eloquent about how she explained that, right? And I think in one of the ways that a lot of writers avoid, which she doesn't, and I really appreciate that, is giving people examples Sometimes the truth needs to be read or shared in a way where you go, okay, well, name one time where that happened, right? (laughs) She calls them the peanut gallery, which I agree with, but she does. She goes on to say that someone like CeeLo Green, who's considered this sort of incredible R&B funk artist and who has a say, right? And by that, I mean, there's enough people that consume CeeLo Green and associate his music with a certain kind of stature, right? And so when someone like that says that the song is vulgar, what does that say? And then she goes on to explain that CeeLo Green has his own share of rape allegations. And for me, that was huge because I didn't know that. Really transparently, I didn't know that before I read this piece. And then I ended up looking into it and I thought to myself, you know, how quickly these women are being ripped apart for this video and this incredible chart-topping song, but how quickly we forgot the things that all of these other artists have been accused of, have participated in. You know, we just talked about it in two pieces. There's a hundred things that go on and we're not glorifying that lifestyle, but I think it's so interesting how we're so quickly able to be like these gang-related artists or these artists that committed crimes 
are entitled to X type of success, but then Cardi B can't seem to do anything without someone talking about the fact that she was a stripper. Yeah, uh, McDuffie, very much one of the things I admired about this piece was that she did not pull any punches. Um, just on on the subject of like how women are treated differently in their fields is, you know, you hear all the time how women talk about how they feel like they can't be loud and vocal or they're called angry um, and they're called, uh, you know, erratic or uncontrollable or, you know, they, all these things that are applied to women when they use a strong voice, but men, the words that are applied to men when they use that strong voice are bold, brave, you know, so I very much appreciated how McDuffie didn't pull the punches. Like when she mentioned CeeLo, she didn't just say, or, or, you know, the easy thing to do would obviously be to pull a bunch of examples from other top rap songs um, that graphically talk about, you know, sex, drugs, violence. Like that would be the easy thing to do and say, well, you didn't have a problem with this. But she went for a harder punch than that. She went straight for like, some of these people are actual rapists and you're supporting their music, but Cardi B can't sing about, you know, and Meg can't sing about what? Like, you know, she really went like she went for it without pulling any of the punches. And I think that that's a really ad- admirable trait in a writer. Um, and I think that that's I don't know if more admiral is the right word, but I think that's more difficult or not even more difficult. But you know what I'm trying to say? It's it's a, it's harder for women to, you know, they face more struggles trying to come across like that with making those bold um, and, you know, and not pulling the punches. There's a higher risk for how their writing is received. And again, you know, that just speaks to how women in the industry are treated differently. Absolutely. And I think I think what I took away from what you were trying to say is that it's often the way that writers meet combating slander is with slander. And she doesn't do that. Right. So her go to here is not disparaging any of them. Right. When she lists Snoop Dogg and 50 Cent, she names them and the song. Right. She doesn't pull out a lyric. She doesn't disparage their song she doesn't demean them and i think that's because she's not criticizing their music that way she's saying that if we can consume this and this is how we respond to it how do we dehumanize women and i think towards the end of the piece she talks about the fact that meg gets shot and there's memes about that before there's a constructive article saying why did she get shot and why are we okay with that why is that a one hour news cycle Right. And so what does that say about how we paint women? And I think one of the best ways, again, word choice, big fan, that we change the way we talk about women in hip hop is by describing their art. It's back to that constructive stuff for me where she says WAP is an enthralling visual experience as well as a bona fide bop. That tells me that I'm hearing a writer talk about a song and that's what it should be about for me. Um, whereas a lot of other headlines that I saw for this song were about what they were wearing, about the dance moves they were doing, about how it was called this or that, even in articles defending it, the headline had referred to as blah, 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 blah. And for me, when you do that, you take so much away from the identity, right? So this title wasn't word choice epic or blew my mind or anything, but I think it was important because say the names of the artists whose song it is. Talk about them. Talk about why it's different for black women. And, and I think that's huge, right? Why did Kylie Jenner being in the video get more coverage than the people that created the video? Whose song it is? Like, this video did so much. And even the backlash of it talks about so many things that we have to read between, between the lines for. Right. I mean, people, people are quick to jump on the train of criticizing sex appeal 
um, that they perceive as just for the sake of sex appeal. Um, I think a lot of times in that perception, though, people don't get how much of the sex appeal sell is also just pushed by the fans and not even by the artist. You know, it's it's the fans who are pushing stuff like, oh, look, like, look how hot they looked in this video or like, look how fine like this artist is. A lot of times it's the fans that are pushing that content even more so than the artist. And that kind of floats to the top. Um, and that's again, that's specific. That's an issue specific to women. Like, you don't see a lot of people trying to sell, you know, J. Cole's music by talking about, like, how attractive J. Cole is. Um, that's a fan thing that a lot of fans do That's just has to do with how women are treated differently. And then this is a sort of outside of the piece but still in the realm of how women are treated differently. Um, but this actually reminded me of a tweet that I saw from Andre G that I replied to on Twitter where it was from uh, Mulatto's XXL Cypher. And it was this tweet with the video and said, uh, Mulatto actually has the talent and sex appeal that Meg the Stallion fans think she has. And it made me really realize how with women in hip hop, it's the fans who are constantly putting women in hip hop up against each other. Like there can't be multiple women in the top of hip hop. Like, I, I mean, you just go no further than Cardi B and Nicki Minaj's beef. A lot of it that was driven by the fans. And then, you know, now you get with Meg and Mulatto and it's people aren't putting them up against each other for their music. They're putting them up against each other for their sex appeal. Right. And as if they have to compete with each other for the spot as the woman in hip hop. Like there's not room for multiple women in the top of hip hop. And that, again, is a like it's a fan driven interaction that has to do with how women are treated differently in hip hop. Absolutely. And I think that gave Candace such an intense responsibility of how do you describe that, right? Because in, in one way, you have a journalistic responsibility to do the song justice and make sure that you talk about the brilliance of it, even though the piece might be centered around combating this slander, right? And so I think there's this, there's this thing she says. She says, hopefully the way we discuss black women and the way they express their sexuality will evolve as much as this hip-hop pair continue to do so. And I think for me that was huge because she didn't pin them against each other. She didn't reference e either of their independent careers before doing this song together. She doesn't reference other women and the challenges of being pinned against each other because that's not a narrative we want to continue distributing. And I think Candace deserves a lot of credit for that. Even in the beginning, calling it this like, this is something that I think someone should put in a song. So Candace, if you somehow end up listening to this, you better write a song and put this in it. But <laughs> I think she calls it like says something roaming the halls of their colorful salacious playhouse while delivering lyrics centering not just on their genitalia but their sexual power and pleasure and i think that's huge i mean i don't know how comfortable you guys are talking about sex but i think it's so interesting that in this song while the title is an acronym for genitalia um they're able to verbalize sexuality and sensuality in such a way without having to be as biologically basic as a lot of hip-hop music generally is. Like, there's so much more going on in the lyrics of this song than just that. And I think that deserves, is hella commendable. Right. Yeah, and it I really mean, pushes it's, the boat out. It's, oh, go, hey, go ahead, Ryan. No, it's so, like, it really pushes the boat out and it makes, it, it makes sure it re-cements itself as the quintessential song like 
female empowerment, own your sexuality song, it really cements itself as that. And we talked about intentionality before, like it's very intentional in that, you know, and that's what I have to say. So right. I mean, it's, it's a foil to how there's been a lot of talk lately on just like misogyny in general in hip hop. Um, and if you look at how sex is talked about by like most male rappers in hip hop, sex is like a conquest. It's a, you know, it's an achievement. It's a thing you go for. And it's, 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 it's given a very, very masculine energy to sex in hip hop. Um, so the fact that now, like, that you have a song that these women can do where they kind of switch the roles up a little bit and they talk about, you know, their pleasure in sex and that they enjoy going out and get sex, it gives a much more um, sort of honest, multidimensional view of what sex is like in the real world, right? You, you know, because if you, if you grow up listening to all, like, this, like, super masculine, like, domineering, like, version of sex, um, then you you get a wrong perception that that's not what the real world is is like. So songs like this from women making empowering female songs about sex is, you know, it's needed in the conversation. It's needed in the music sphere, it, not just on a service of empowering, you know, only women – but it it benefits everyone. It's important to like have those dual perspectives. I don't, you know, I don't always think that everything needs to be super polarizing. But when you don't have a lot of women with this kind of voice in hip hop, like the ones who really push for it need to be strong on it. You know, they need to go just as far like the other direction. To sort of like bring things back into balance, you know? Absolutely. When I think about the type of artists that stuck out for me when I was younger, the reason the ones that talking about, that spoke about women in a non-sexual manner, like Miss Independent by Neo, for example, stuck out was because it was a man talking about a woman in a way that she hadn't been spoken about before, comparatively speaking, right? Not because I thought that sex was demeaning, but if I was younger and this song came out, and I was listening to this on Top 40, that would remind me as a younger girl that I can be bad and I can enjoy my own pleasure and I have a say in those things and these conversations aren't being had by people about me and how I should feel. And I think that lyrically, right, like, I let him taste it, now he diabetic. If Lil Wayne said I let her taste it, now she diabetic, everybody would be in the corner clapping and being like, what a lyrical genius. And I, I just, I haven't seen anything covering how lyrically genius this was. So I think that that's, I think that's huge. And we won't get too deep into this, but the dichotomy of making submissive references to the very things men say about women and what they enjoy in sex, but being the ones to say that they enjoy it is a huge pivotal shift that I think that shouldn't be overlooked. And I think Candace did a good job of, not having to say that, but saying it as sexual pleasure, packaging it as being empowered, because that's what it is. Right, very much so. That was, when, like, when I, when I started the piece, obviously, I was like, uh, you know, sort of what I began at the beginning of this conversation, sort of like, can't believe we're having this conversation again, um, was very much like what I went into the piece with, like, I wanted to see how she presented it. Because on its face, it seems like a very, very straightforward argument. A very straightforward, like, yes, like, yes, it's empowering. Like, yes, women can do these things. Women should be able to do these things. If you, like, shut up, stop, like, stop telling, stop, stop trying to police women. Like, it seemed very, like, a very straightforward issue 
and very on the face to me. So I enjoyed seeing how articulate she was at laying out like the argument. It's, it's one of those things I feel like seems so obvious that it's difficult to argue about. Like if you're having that discussion with someone, it's easy to get frustrated and just be like, like, no, like you, like you're being sexist right now, like, and try to use that as your argument. So I'm glad that she took a very articulate angle to it. Um, and I, I think it, it, it's given me a lot more sort of like tools to pull from in the conversation, uh, which is, you know, as Ryan said with the last article, I believe, uh, or might've been the Greedo one is just important context to have when, you know, these conversations come up in the future because it probably will. Yeah, I think one of the best themes of today's podcast episode is that each of the writers have done incredible due diligence. And I think my favorite way that Candace did that in this piece was when she referenced whether it was an example of someone degrading a woman in their song and that being okay, or of other women that have been previously received the same amount of backlash, she doesn't focus on what that actually was, right? Because that would give so much credit and so much limelight to the wrong or like the unwarranted comments, but she just focuses on the fact that it's happened before. So it drops that seed so quickly in like a five, six paragraph article that, hey, this ain't new and you have to know that. And then she ends it with saying that they're going to continue setting trends despite backlash, which is so true, right? Like it hasn't hurt their bottom line. Yeah. The, the quote you read from the ending of this one was fantastic. The one about how hoping that the, the culture progresses and grows as much as these women have. That, like, that's a bar. That was a bar. Literally, Candace, make a song. That's all we're saying. <laughs> we need the, uh, we need a, Charlie needs to add in some gunshot sounds whenever we read a bar from the, from a, from a, from a piece. <laughs> he's ro- he's rolling his eyes quietly because he can't, he can't, he can't take himself off mute. Oh, all right uh, do we do we have anything else for the pieces today yeah i just want to say like we talked about journalistic um what's the word you just used it joshima due um, diligence yeah 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 like oh what's the specific word i was saying responsibility right yeah due diligence responsibility so like we talked about pieces today that kind of recontextualize art but i don't think any of it is as a gargantuan task and as an important task is what Candace took on with this piece like because it's more than creating like I guess correcting the narrative around a song it's correcting a narrative around art from a whole gender and (laughs) that's so massive and she does it in how many paragraphs like six (laughs) something like that you know not a lot I'm always amazed by people who can write short because I cannot. Amen. I think that's true for sure. Last year on, I think it was International Day of the Girl or something, the UN had a women in media panel and there was a filmmaker there who talked about the biggest mistake she felt like she made in life was going to South Asia and Africa and making these documentaries and showing people how destitute someone was or how unfortunate things were because that became how the world saw them and she said that she underestimated the value of displaying those people as equivalently powerful or sharing their skill sets or their linguistic and cultural differences to humanize them in a way that we could appreciate them and when you're talking about mainstream american media especially now hip-hop 
the way we position gender, people, culture, rights is the way much of the rest of the world is consuming it because that might be their only media. And so as journalists, is there a generation of kids streaming the internet, reading forums and reading the things that all of us write and how do we do better? Yeah, absolutely. That's like a massive take responsibility to take on and she executed this piece to absolute perfection. Um, as Brandon said, like it can be infuriating to even talk about this stuff and like making sure you say the right thing and making sure it's not jumbled with anger, but making it so precise. Like it was perfect. I thought this is like a perfect piece, especially because it's so short. I love that. Love that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, closing thoughts on that one. Anything else? Good stuff. No, yeah, really good stuff. All right then. So that is our show. Last shout-out for all the journalists we featured today. That's Thomas Hobbs for Dazed, with Othi Guido is running West Coast Rap from Prison. It's Andre G with uh, Posthumous Rap Albums and The Shattered Myth of Closure for Complex. And <laughs> uh, Candice McDuffie for Consequence of Sound, Backlash Against Cardi B and Megan Stadion's WAP, highlights double standards in hip-hop. Thank you so much to the journalists for creating pieces that we feel like are great enough that we talk about them for an hour and a half on a podcast <laughs> um yeah so thank you to you guys as well for joining us on the episode hope joshie you found your first podcast experience to be a good one um i hope i did it right but yeah no i look forward to future <laughs> podcast episodes where yeah, hopefully yeah. i can introduce some badass pieces that don't have to continue talking about gender disparities. <laughs> that's the hope. Because there'll be less of them. Um, yeah, as always, leave a review on any podcast platform that you um, listen on. If you haven't checked out last week's interview with Elliot Wilson, you you want to. You definitely want to. Um, he comes at me within like five seconds of the recording. He's <laughs> already... <laughs> um, he's already on the offensive when it comes to it. something I said in episode... 13 or whatever which is it's nice that you listen so intently yeah that's a good thing <laughs> and uh brandon do you want to plug people sending us pieces yeah so um obviously our podcast is angled at writers journalists people involved in music um so if you are aware of someone with a small platform an independent writer who is sort of just sending their writing off into the ether uh send it to us and we will read it, and if we like it, we would love to feature it on our podcast. We know from experience, personal experience, that there are lots of great writers out there whose writing is not quite reaching uh, the audience that it should be, and we have a platform that we can sort of chip away at that and add some improvement to that. So, yeah, send us your stuff. We would love to read it and hopefully feature it on the podcast. Absolutely. All right. Thank That's you. me signing off. Peace. Thanks for listening. This episode of Minnesota Source featured Ryan Gore, Brandon Hill, and Tashima Wadara of the Central Source Crave Collective. The episode is edited by me, Chai Taylor of the Fulfillment Podcast Network. Music for the show is fucked up by Basti and secure up records for the ability to use. This has been a Central Source and Fifth End Podcast Network production. Links for bars, teacher, off records, Central Source, the Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. 
Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.